Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Um, it was only a couple weeks ago that I, that I was here last and I was preaching <clears throat> on Sunday morning and I preached about the word becoming flesh and, and really the significance of the Christmas story. Um, and there's something that I really love, and, and I love, like the, like, the historical framework of the Bible, because so much of the Bible is narrative, and it's telling a story that, that most of the time actually happened. Like, there's a couple instances where people say, like, the, the Song of Solomon isn't, like, literal events. It's more poetic sort of imagery, and there's stuff like Job, like people are like, did, was Job a real person or was he like, because like how did we get the account that like the devil was talking to God? Who was witnessing that? Who told them about that, you know? And, and God never tells Job what happened. If you read the whole book, he never like gets the insight like, oh yeah, this was like a, a case study on how people <laughs> handle suffering, you know? It's like, no, he never gets any of that information. And so people, people go through these kinds of things, but I love when we get these landmarks in the story and then we get, like, the, the arcs in between the landmarks. So it's easy, and even during communion this morning, I hit the birth of Jesus, I hit the, the resurrection of Jesus, and then I hit the second coming. Can you imagine the amount of space and time between those three events? Pretty significant, you know? Between the, the like, incarnation and Jesus being born and him dying is uh, his own lifetime. You know, that's, that's 33-ish years. And then between the... Uh, actual death of Jesus on the cross to the resurrection, that's a, a matter of days. And then between the resurrection and the ascension, that's a matter of weeks. And then the ascension to the second coming is TBD. You know, like <laughs> that's something that, that we, we jump to like, oh, well, I guess the rest of it, we'll just jump to the end. When uh, like 21, 22 revelation, we'll just get there. But where we're at right now is in between. You know, we're in that tension. And, and I love that the Bible talks about these seasons and doesn't gloss over them. And, and so I just want to talk about one scene that we get. It's the closest thing to the infancy narrative that we get um, in the uh, New Testament. So uh, let's look at Luke chapter 2. If you want to turn in your Bible, can I have that cup? Yes. So where we're at, so that way you guys don't get lost. Where we're at is that Jesus has been born, and there was angels and singing and glory and celebration. There was shepherds and prophets, and all these powerful images are taking place. We see probably approximately two years later, we see these, um, these kings and these rulers, these astronomers from the east come over, and they offer these like strangely prophetic gifts to Jesus, um, and, and it wasn't like in the manger. This was probably, like I said, like two years later that the, the Magi come and they offer gifts to Jesus. Um, all the while, his parents are kind of wading through this, this confusing reality of having a baby, which is already by itself, if anybody has kids, already confusing and difficult. But you have this baby that bears absolute significance. And I, and I, and I have two kids, and my kids are the best kids, so... Competition's over. They're the best. But to imagine that, like, you feel that sort of affection for your child, like, man, this child is so important. 
but then it's actually true. <laughs> you know, like, it's not just like they're important in terms of like, maybe they'll do something really good someday. It's like, no, this is literally the most important person who ever lived, that I'm sustaining their life. You know, this will be the most important person to ever exist. And kind of reckoning with that and visiting, like angels visiting them and all this sort of stuff. So we get a little bit of a fast forward to um, kind of the pre-adolescence of Jesus. And we see these examples of Jesus' family were very devout. And I think, I have, I have a, a running theory that they were pretty devout to begin with. It wasn't just like once you start seeing angels show up in your bedroom, you're like, maybe I should take this whole faith thing more seriously and religion should be a more significant part of my life. I think that in the beginning, they were pretty devout, pretty, pretty um, committed to God's ways and his law and these kinds of things. And so it, uh, the, the Gospel of Luke describes them to be very pious in performing their religion. And so in verse 39, it says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And so they kept all the requirements of the law, the circumcisions, the, the rites of purification, all these sort of things that were required for um, bearing children and these kinds of things. And then they had to make the long road back to Nazareth. Nazareth is not a town of great significance outside of Jesus. That's why you, even in the beginning of John, you see a disciple say to his brother, like, you should see, like, come and see, like, he's, he's here. The, the guy, the Messiah is here. Uh, he came from Nazareth. And they're like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so that wasn't just like a, an empty pejorative. Like, it was a very small town that didn't really have much going on that was previously in a, in a, in a Gentile-occupied Galilee. So it's like, it wasn't this, this great esteem or this significance outside of, like, the prophetic history of the Bible. Now, I think when we're talking about why books of the Bible exist, Luke is one of the easiest books to work through because literally verse 1, chapter 1, he's like, let me tell you why I wrote this book. How helpful, you know? It's like, what a good test to, how should I interpret this? Well, I can go back to the first page, and he told me why he wrote it. And so he literally... He, he um, like both of his books, he addresses them to this person, Theophilus, that uh, scholars believe is both a real person and also like a concept of a person who loves God, like it's for all people who, who love and follow God. And so he said, I want to write something. There's been a lot of really good biographies of Jesus, but I want to write something that is in consecutive order. Praise God. <laughs> you know, like we just got done with uh, 188 months of Jeremiah. Just kidding. It wasn't that long. Um, <laughs> And we'll get through things, and people are like, haven't we read this before? And it's like, we have, but it's not talking about it in sequential order. We even got to a point a couple weeks before we were done, and like, this is actually technically the last chronological moment of Jeremiah. And you see at some point in the book, the book is destroyed. And we're like, wait, I'm reading it right now. <laughs> like, what, what happened? Like, I don't understand. And so it's not written in chronological order, and not a lot of books in the Bible are written in chronological order. They're organized by theme and, and all that sort of stuff. But Luke says, you know what? I'm going to write Jesus' story in order. And I'm going to write it for this purpose, most honorable Theophilus, that you could know why you believe the things you were told. And what a good thing. I love the fact that there's an explanation that we are not a part of some sort of cold religion that, like, just do these things because cause it seems good. Just do it, you know? Because I'm already, like, we're only six years into parenting at this point. Arrow will be seven in April. Olive is four. 
and I'm already pulling out because I said so, you know? Like, because I've said this before, I'm an explanation person. I love to explain things. But sometimes you just answer why so many times that you're like, just because, just shut up and do it, you know? Like, <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes you, you've, you've explained it so many times where it's like, I don't think I could explain it again. I think my, my, that part of my brain is melting, you know? Um, but I love the fact that like these, this faith that we have, this way of Jesus that we belong to, this, uh, this order, so to speak, of disciples that we are a part of has restrictions. It has commands that need to be kept. And that's scary because we're saved by grace, but there is a way to follow Jesus. That there are things that Jesus said not to do, and there are things that Jesus told you you have to do. And I don't know if any of you have this sort of resistance. Maybe some of you are just like textbook followers. And, and I think uh, I, I usually follow into that category that I just love a good instruction and I'll just do it. But the reality is it's hard to retain motivation, especially when you're meeting resistance, if you don't know why you're doing something. You know, it's like uh, I remember my sister had this job, and she was doing, like, she worked for, like, a call center service. And she had worked there for several years, and then they changed up the whole system of how they, like, took calls and, and wrote things down. And she was at a desk on a computer. And they changed it to actually make it more complicated. And... She's explaining this to me, and I think at the time I was maybe like 11 or 12, and I was like, I don't understand. Why would they increase the amount of processes if they already optimized it? And she said that people were getting carpal tunnel syndrome from just doing the same movements over and over again. And it was like running rampant through their business. And so they actually had to make the, the operations more complicated so their fingers would like have variety, you know? <laughs> but can you imagine not, not making it to that meeting? And just showing up to work one morning and being like, oh, yeah, that thing that you used to do with three keystrokes, now it takes 18. And you have to go to three different web pages and all these sort of things. You'd be so frustrated. But there's actually a pretty reasonable reason. You know, there's probably another solution than making it more complicated. But I'm not that, I don't run that company. I don't know what the answer is. <coughs> um, but we get uh, these people. And... Uh, Luke will continue to, to uh, address this theme throughout his biography of the faithfulness, of the um, consistency of the people to keep the law, and he uses the examples of, of Anna and Simeon and these different people um, in the first couple chapters, and now we see Jesus' parents also being marked as, as righteous people, that they kept the law and that they were doing their best to be blameless. And it's all for this purpose of communicating the message. There's a reason why you have to do the things that you were told. So, um, I think uh, that there is such a highlight that comes with the Christmas story. It feels familiar and it feels warm. It's the, the concept of, of breaking kind of the tragedy of history with a message of hope but it's pretty quickly interrupted by everything else, you know, that we can have those sort of landmarks of hope. And I know I did um, student ministry for a lot of years, and uh, we would take kids to, like, conferences and events and, and things like that. And, and there always, every time, there seemed to be this unexpected reaction to, like, big events and, and popular speakers and powerful worship teams and being in a big, great assembly of people. There always seemed to be this reaction that kids that could, could care less on any given week, all of a sudden are crying in an altar call, only to find 
the next Monday morning, they're back to the same sort of patterns that they were in before. Maybe they, they can buy themselves a couple weeks, but overall the struggle continues to arise. And I think it's actually very encouraging to know that uh, the Bible isn't like foreign to those sort of details. Sometimes you'll read things in succession and think like, man, powerful things were just happening constantly. And it was just this, this stimulation after stimulation, miracle after miracle. But the Bible is made up of these stories of tension and these gaps. And people tend to get bent out of shape that we don't have like these intense records of the early years of Jesus. Like we don't have this like curated history of his, his young life. And I think there's a good reason because he was a fairly obscure person that lived in a fairly obscure time where his entire people group was oppressed by uh, the main event that was the Roman Empire, that we have all kinds of history about them, you know? But, like, you don't just keep history of a random little boy in a random little town in a random little country. And so it makes sense. And it adds to this, this picture of the humility of Jesus as the Lord. But I love verse 40 in chapter 2. It says, the child, being Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I think this is marvelous because Jesus wasn't a prodigy necessarily. So when we say that Jesus was truly human, I like uh, the late R.C. Sproul would describe it because we usually say fully God, fully human, but that kind of denotes amounts. <laughs> um, but it's like he truly was a human being, that he had to learn how to use the restroom. He had to learn how to read. He had to learn how to do these things. He had to grow in wisdom and strength, and he had to learn his father's trade for a season. He had to do these things that all of us have to do, and this is deeply, deeply relatable, and that's marvelous, and that God's grace was with him, and that's the same sort of description that's described, description that's described, that's funny. Um, It's the same sort of way that we are described in every introduction of an epistle in the New Testament is that uh, you would have grace be on you, like, like that, that grace and peace would be with you. And it's the same grace that Jesus had is the same grace that we have. And that's a beautiful thing because he had an advantage. I don't want to make him out like he was just me, but uh, a long time ago. Like he was a very different person. But he still had to go through the processes and the gaps. And those quiet years in between his birth in a manger and his death on the cross were quiet. You know, he wasn't doing miraculous, crazy things. He wasn't performing miracles and doing these crazy acts because we would have probably heard about them. But he was listening to his mom and dad, and he was going to Hebrew school, and he was learning his trade, and he was getting calluses on his hands for working with wood and stone. He was doing the things that a, a, a boy and a man of his stature were supposed to do. And I think that's a beautiful thing, like that Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord, our God, went through puberty. He went through trials and struggles and his voice changing and and his body changing. He went through all the temptations of a normal person and he grew and the grace of God was with him. And he lived in a place that wasn't exceptional and he came from a family that didn't have this high and important class and he grew up in simplicity and honestly probably struggles. You know, he had... um, hurdles that he had to get over just being born in the time that he was born. And, and I love the account of Luke because we get this one scene 
in between. So we get the scene between his birth and his like incarnate ministry, his breaking onto uh, the, the scope with his itinerant preaching ministry, whatever. And w- what I can imagine, and, and obviously they don't write about these sort of things because they don't, like Bible authors don't really care about like me being able to tell you all the answers. They're just not really concerned about those sort of things. But what I can imagine is that as Luke was compiling accounts and and putting them in consecutive order. He's listening to eyewitnesses, and he's writing all this down. He's probably coming to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and be like, what can you tell me about that that early stage of faith? What can you tell me about those early years? And I imagine she probably had plenty of stories, because Jesus, I mean, pretty good stories. But there's something about this account in particular that he's like, wow, we should should put that in there. Because we don't get any other... Uh, any other history about this time, but it's like this one account probably came secondhand through, I mean, Luke wasn't there writing it down. That would be weird. Like, why would he even know? Even priests weren't talking about this particular event, but I think it's actually really compelling. Um, Let's look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast And as they were returning after uh, spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. Verse 44. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, whether or not you are a parent, this is a wild scene. <laughs> to lose your child for multiple days is a scary thing. <laughs> like, I don't care like who you are, that is frightening. And even at 12, that's intense. That's Aaron's age. Like, losing that person. and ha- There's no cell phones. There's no find my friends. There's no, like, uh, there's no, like you can't just call the temple really quick and be like, hey, hey have you seen a little boy, curly-haired, Jewish... Um, yeah, everywhere. Uh, <laughs> you're describing everyone. Um, and I think this is not to paint Jesus' parents in a negative light. Sometimes we like to do that, looking at this story through modern eyes. We look at like, man, they weren't even paying attention. You have to understand, this was a very routine trip, that they did this every single year. They had their route marked out, and likely they were traveling with every person from their town. Because Nazareth was really small, so you probably knew most people. And I'm talking really small, not like Pagosa really small, like actually like really small. And uh, I had a book that had like the, the size and the, the layouts of these kinds of things, and it was just really wrong. I don't know wh- how this book got published, but I like said one thing one time, and somebody's like, that's just not true. I was like, how do they just make up figures? People just do that. Sometimes they'll just make up statistics and just, who's going to check, you know? Anyways, I still have that book. I don't know why. Anyway, so it's really small. They're likely traveling with everyone they know, and this is not an individualistic, introverted society. They're a collectivist society. They work as an entire unit, so it's, it's really likely that Jesus was very close with their neighbors that were probably their relatives, and it would be completely understandable for him to walk with them. It would be completely understandable, that, like, oh, I don't have to check in with my parents every 15 seconds. This is literally our entire community that we're traveling with, and we do it every year. So they sit down for dinner after one day of traveling, 
and they're counting heads, because they likely already have other children, um, and they're like, wait a second, something is missing. Our oldest kid, that one that angels told us about, he's not here. And so there's understandably anxiety, and um, I was reading in a commentary that they said that they traveled a day's journey, and that's usually an approximation of like 25 miles. It doesn't matter how long it was. They had been walking all day. That's a long time. doesn't matter what distance they covered. That's a long time. But can you imagine walking 25 miles or just walking the entire day and then realizing we forgot something pretty important <laughs> and then having to double back? I imagine that Mary was leading the charge double speed on the way back. And they get back and they search for three days all throughout the city. This is the major city. This is the city of their of their entire uh, understanding and their faith. This is a city of history and reputation. They're looking everywhere, assuming, uh, likely assuming the worst. But I think there's something interesting, and, and I, I didn't think about this before any time I read this, but it doesn't actually describe the intention behind being, like, staying behind. It doesn't say that he stayed behind on purpose. So he may have just gotten lost in the shuffle <laughs> and gotten left behind. Regardless of, of how he was left behind, he made the most of his time. And so they go in to the temple. Um, it's not necessarily assumed that it's the last place they looked, but they had been searching for several days, and the temple is kind of the thing in Jerusalem. It's kind of the big thing. They come in, and they see there in the temple courts the teachers of the law, and these are religious elite people. Nowadays, if you tell somebody that you're a teacher, of the Bible, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. <laughs> Not in America. But in those days, if you could be qualified as a rabbi, as a teacher of the law, that was considered a high honor. And they didn't just carry authority intellectually, th though they definitely did, but they carried like governmental authority. They, they were advisors. They were speaking to these things. So these are important people. And Jesus is sitting there with them, asking questions and listening. And I think this is exciting um, because to, like, the Jewish understanding, there's this representation of, like, sitting that um, it reminds me of, like, Mary of Bethany, if you remember that account. It's in all four biographies of Jesus. There's this young woman from a town called Bethany, and it's this scandalous thing that she's sitting at Jesus' feet while her sister is off doing the cooking and the cleaning and, and all that sort of stuff. And we've taken that story, and Jesus said that wherever you go and you tell my story, you'll tell this story, because it's really important. And she does the whole uh, perfume jar thing and, and whatever. But I think the thing that is usually glossed over is that the term sitting is not just like the physical position that she was in. Now, this is something that uh, historically and culturally denoted being a student and being a disciple. And so all of the disciples that Jesus, like, calls by name in the New Testament were men, usually young men. And, uh, but he had a lot of ladies with him as well. And Mary had this sort of belief that even though she was a young girl and her, par her parents were apparently deceased and she didn't really have much to go on, that she could be a student of Jesus too, that she could be a disciple and that when Jesus was in times of need and heartache, he would go to Bethany and he would visit his friends and his students at Bethany. And I think it's a beautiful thing 
But this example of sitting was, was a, a, a common idiom that could legitimately like, be literal posture, like they're sitting, the teacher's standing sort of thing. Um, but it also is just that greater symbol of being a student. And so Jesus is, is here, 12 years old, sitting with the teachers, learning from them, asking them questions. This is already a pretty big leap from his stature because he was 12 years old. And if you know anything about like Jewish culture, it's, it's been like this for some time. But when you're 13 years old, that's when you become under the law, and that's when you become a man. And you have your bar mitzvah, which uh, like is, is a modern Jewish phrase that means son of the covenant. That's when you're included in the promises of Israel, is when you do your bar mitzvah ceremony at 13. So Jesus isn't even like a person yet. <laughs> you know, he's still just a child that needs to be taken care of. And he comes from a poor region, from a poor family, and yet he's sitting here with the elite. And they're talking, and they're having conversations. And I think it's this glorious contrast that you see the humility in Jesus' character, but also the majesty and just the confidence, you know, that not knowing where to go in this big, bustling city, he finds himself in the temple um, talking to the teachers of the law. So as the scene unfolds, we get a little bit more detail on what Luke is trying to tell us. So in verse 47, it says this, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When, he, when they saw him, they being his parents, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand this statement, which he had made to them. Now, what we get is cognitively aware Jesus in action for the very first time. And we understand that verse 46 says that he was asking questions and listening. And verse 47 says that he was answering questions. And people were shocked. And, and I need you to understand that Bible literacy is, is sort of unicornish nowadays. That somebody that like knows the Bible really well is not super common. There are people who know like the highlights and that, that there's like whole generations of people that just know the general story. But to know like the ins and outs is something reserved for ivory towers in colonial cities and seminaries and professors and, and it's just not that common anymore for people to know the Bible really well. And so the fact that among a society where people knew the scripture pretty well, Jesus is amazing people with his understanding. Amazing people probably for his age, you know, that he was a young person uh, from humble backgrounds, probably didn't have the same access to schooling that kids who lived in Jerusalem did. But he was amazing people with the way that he would ask insightful questions that he would listen, and then he would provide insightful answers. This is a total side note, but it's in my notes, so I'm going to say it. We have kind of lost this wonder today because we tend to think, like, if you just get the, the, the bullet points down for the Bible, then you can answer every question, and there shouldn't be really any tension. But the reality is, as long as the Bible has been read and orally delivered, there has been tension. There has been people that disagree on what exactly it means and what exactly stories we're talking about. These fellas were very close to the original context of what the Bible was written, and they're still asking questions and answering them before each other. 
And when you get these itinerant rabbis that are traveling and teaching, it's because they have a specific teaching on a difficult topic. So they're taking these teachings and they're bringing them and they're unfolding them and bringing them to light. And that's why Jesus would call it their yoke. This is the way that they teach. This is the way that they communicate to people. And so here we find uh, the, the height of intellectualism in the, in the Jewish world as people are debating and talking, not just in some, some podunk synagogue. This is the temple, baby. This is the big one. And Jesus is there, and he's matching wits with these professionals who have devoted their lives to memorizing and meditating the scriptures, and somehow everyone that is present company is amazed. And his parents walk in, and it uses a different word in my translation, not amazed. I think it probably captures the same meaning, but the word astonished is a rare word. I don't know when the last time you were astonished was. Uh, The last time I was astonished, I was driving from Texas, and I, uh, I think I was surprised at how many fireworks stands are in Texas. Like buildings are built to sell fireworks like year-round. It's crazy. But I was astonished when I hit not a deer, not a rabbit. I hit a possum. Never seen a possum before in my life. And the first one I saw, I killed. So <laughs> I was astonished. I was like kind of choked up about it. Like I was kind of sleepy while I was driving. And I could have swerved harder, but it's like, how, how risky am I going to make this, this scene so I was just like, oh, I hope my tires, oh, nope, squished it. <laughs> and I was astonished. I was like, that's all I could think about for hours. <laughs> if you remember anything from today. Um, I hope that the possums aren't like protected in Texas or something like that. I'm not exposing myself. Um, <laughs> when they saw him, they were astonished. And I think if I could put myself in their shoes and I could think of, my children, or, or even just someone I know from, from Pagosa or somebody that I know, sitting with very important people and obviously getting some sort of regard and attention from them, that's shocking, surprising. And this is people who know Jesus really well, better than anyone else. These are his parents. This is his mom and dad, and likely all of his brothers and sisters were there too, and they're shocked. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? And this is, this is where we get to the territory where angry YouTubers and atheists will be like, gotcha, because it seems like Mary is correcting Jesus as if he was being disobedient or he was some sort of rebellious child. And I'm sure there's plenty of like cutting edge, like, n- like new wave preachers that like to carry that, like, oh, Jesus was just a rascal and he was just always ruffling feathers on purpose because he was just a provocateur sort of person. And I don't think that's really what's going on here. I don't think Jesus was being disobedient to parents, but I think it's a glimpse into the fact that they legitimately didn't understand who Jesus was. It's very easy for us on this side of this publication of scripture to poke fun at like the disciples who are told outright, I am going to die, but I will come back. And they're still like, what? Is that a parable, Jesus? It's like, no, I am going to die, but in three days time, I'll come back. And then he dies and they're like, Who could have seen this coming? And we like to poke fun at that, but we have to put ourselves in their shoes that the dude talked in symbols all the time. (laughs) He really did. And so when it comes to this big, important thing, they're like, you're obviously an important person. How are you going to accomplish the will of God by dying? That seems backwards. You should be doing some killing. You know, like, what are you going to do? Like, how does this work? And so we see that even with Mary and Joseph, who had an angelic visitation that a messenger from God's own presence told them what was going to happen, and they're still like, 
I don't really get it. I don't really understand. This seems strange. And so when he says, why were you looking for me? He's not just being a rascal. I, there, maybe there's some sense of humor in there. I think Jesus was a human. I know that Jesus was a human. That's like pretty, pretty foundational. <clears throat> but I don't think that was the, the meat of, of what he was saying. He, he was honestly saying, like, this is who I am. Why wouldn't you assume this was the first place I would be? Why did it take you three days to get here to realize who I really am? That wouldn't I be in my father's house? And so there's so much to this, because if I've learned a couple things about the Bible, they don't use numbers like three on accident. That was very purposeful. And we can see that three as like a hyperlink. If you ever get an email and you got some blue words, you click on that, it takes you somewhere else. The number three, you click on that, it takes you to the resurrection of Jesus. It takes you to this idea that like there was this hopelessness that felt like he was lost, and then three days later, you found him and you had greater revelation about him than ever before. And the fact that he doesn't call this, like, wouldn't you know that I would be in the temple of the Lord? Now, this is the house that was built for my father. This is a house that carries more significance than any synagogue or church ever would because he said that he would put his name there. This isn't just a building. This is my father's house. Wouldn't you know that I would be here? And I think, I don't have a 12-year-old. If my six-year-old said that, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Shut up. I don't tell my kids to shut up. That's a bad move. <laughs> but in this context, totally. That's what my heart says. Um, but to imagine a person with some sort of like cognitive understanding, a person whose brain hasn't been melted by Roblox and TikTok, speaking to you this way, why would you be looking for me? Why wouldn't you know exactly where I was? Of course I'm going to be in my father's house. Some translations will say, I have to be about my father's business, my father's affairs. I have to be about them. And we don't really get like a spanking scene. We don't get the corporal punishment scene between <laughs> Joseph and Jesus. Um, but what we do get is there's some sort of resignation like, wow, you're probably right. We probably should have known that this is where you would be the place where you probably ought not to be, but the place that it makes the most sense for you to be there. And so back in verse 40, it said that he has this trajectory over his life that he is growing in wisdom and stature. He's growing strong. And now we see by 12 years old, he's grown in wisdom and he's strong. So much so that he can impress the probably most difficult people to impress with his understanding. And so he tells his parents, obviously, this is where I was going to be. And their response is, they didn't understand. Mary goes on to say that she treasures these things in her heart. And if you can contrast this to, like, the shepherds who heard the good news about Jesus from angels and then went off telling everybody. It says Mary was constantly like, what do you mean? And she's, uh, I heard a, a, a teacher explain it this way, that that word treasured, actually means to put into context. Like, she's trying to relate these things. Like, what, what do I do with this? You know, because obviously this is important. And obviously I love my other children too, but this one kid is different. From everything, from his conception to the way that he's acting now, he's not just some awkward prodigy, he's different. Because my kids are smart, but this is 
different. You know what I mean? So when we're talking about Jesus being full of wisdom and understanding and amazing people, there's something about the Jewish background that's important to explain here. So often in American Christianity, um, we kind of think of like the Bible as like the answers to the test, not necessarily the subject to question. And for a long time, people who have a lot of questions are kind of like looked down on. And I don't think it's always been that way. I think it, it, it's uh, uh, unbelief is, is a dangerous place to be, but the idea that you want to actually believe what you're confessing and that you want to understand things and that you want to grow gre- deeper in relationship, that's actually a really positive sign. And generations ago, they were, they were already debating Old Testament writings, and priests were devoted to understanding these things and still debating them. And so uh, Jesus, as uh, a preteen, interjects himself into that story as a rabbi and as a teacher, and even as he travels, that's the way he's identified, that he would have given years to learning his father's trade, because what we don't get on screen is that somewhere between this event and Jesus actually being like a traveling and preaching in the rest of the Gospels, is his father passed away. Um, we understand that pretty plainly because he's just not there. And it looks like actively throughout the stories of Jesus, he's taking care of his mom and his siblings. As the firstborn, as, as the oldest, he's taking care of his family because his father somehow met an untimely end. And he spent years learning his father's trade as a craftsman and these kinds of things. But yet when he breaks onto the scene, he's not just fixing people's carts or uh, building things out of stone, he is teaching. And I was, I was met by this this morning because I think it was really, really interesting, and I hadn't thought about this before, and I, and I believe it was something of the Holy Spirit that identified this um, for me because Jesus makes this very clear statement, why are you looking for me? Of course I would be here. And Jesus isn't a liar. He's not just a rascal, rebel, weirdo, or anything like that. But that, it, to some degree, it, it made sense that he would be there. But I was thinking, why wouldn't he be other places? Because it's, it's commonplace to find Jesus in the Gospels with the poor, with the oppressed. But yet they didn't find him there. And he wasn't strumming up works, trying to start a new life in Jerusalem, doing his father's trade that he had been learning since he could probably lift a primitive hammer. But he said, of course, I would be in my father's house. And I was, I was gripped by this because there's something to the idea that I'm not trying to say, like, trades aren't important, because they are. And I'm not trying to say that um, Jesus doesn't care for the poor or the oppressed or that's some sort of second-rate priority or something like that. But when he was uh, <laughs> the earliest recognition of him understanding his identity, he was before God learning his law. He was before the Lord, because the temple, again, isn't just like a fancy church. The temple is the house that is meant to house God's presence. This is a temple that had been destroyed and reconstructed multiple times. This is the temple that had the most holy place within it that people could encounter the literal manifest presence of God. And he said, of course I would be here, and of course I would be talking to these these men about the law of the Lord. And I think this is something that we 
tend to lose sight of. That when Jesus first breaks on the scene, yes, he's moving in signs and wonders. And he considers that's very important as an expression of the kingdom of God, of compassion and kindness. But people are amazed at the way that he talks. Can you imagine that? It's easy to think like, okay, you've got some kid's sack lunch and you managed to feed thousands of people. Color me astonished. That's amazing. There was a person who was dead and now they're not. That's amazing. But people were remarking at 12 years old, not by the miraculous works that he was doing, but the way that he could teach and communicate. That's amazing, they would say. And do you remember the way they described his teaching in like the beginning of Mark and, and right before he starts casting out demons and stuff? They say he teaches, he doesn't teach like one of our teachers. We have these scribes and these, these experts at the law. He doesn't teach like those guys. He teaches like somebody who has authority. And you think about that phrase because in school, you'll go to school and you'll take some level of literature classes and you'll read these books by authors who are probably long since dead and you'll speculate and pontificate. What does that mean? The, the eyeballs in The Great Gatsby, what does that mean? Does it mean that F. Scott Fitzgerald wore glasses or is it the eyes of God staring down in judgment as the Roaring Twenties? F. Scott didn't say anything, man. To my knowledge, he didn't say like, oh, that's what the eyes mean. Wink, wink, nod, nod. The eyes mean that thing, you know? That's what that, that's what, the yellow car means bananas. You know, like, he doesn't explain it, but we spend time and fill halls and have lectures. What does this mean? But can you imagine if good old F. Scott just came to your class and be like, oh, yeah, that would be a good use of that image. I didn't think about it. Or, it's exactly like that. It's exactly like the eyes of God. You got it straight on. How relieving that would feel. All the debates ended, and the author spoke to the intention of the writer. And that's the way Jesus taught. Like, settle, settle your disputes with the law of the Lord. I'm going to tell you what it actually meant, because I was there when it was written. Because I was the one who actually came up with the idea and put it down. I was the one who breathed inspiration into this prophetic writer and had them record an image that I came up with. I was the one that was there governing history forward as these men and women were crafting this work that we would pour over and discuss and devote hours to so that way we could know the Lord. I was there, and I'm going to teach it to you with authority. That's a beautiful thing, man. And I feel like it's so easy for us now to lose sight of how amazing it is the way that Jesus talks. Because I'm, I'm 100% on board for the things that Jesus does. But I think again and again of these accusations against uh, people groups, it just feels, it, it, it feels conflicting, doesn't it? That Jesus will just pour out spiritual power and he'll be healing people that just touch his clothes. But then he'll say crazy things like, man, it's a wicked an adulterous generation that wants a sign. It's like, excuse me, you're doing it all the time. Seems like a good thing to like. like but that's not the point. The point is, and, and the way that the, the New Testament writers in Acts would describe it, is that he's using the signs to confirm the word. And he's saying, this is the truth about who God is, and I'll show you, because the kingdom of God will come behind it, and will do the things that God does. Do the things that only God can do and restoring your heart, restoring your body, restoring your mind. 
<clears throat> he speaks as one with authority and not just another scribe. That he didn't just memorize the scripture and meditate on it, but he spoke from the author's intention. And we get this glorious contrast again that we see Jesus aware of his identity, that he belongs to the Father, and that he belongs in the Father's presence, but also in humility as he submits to his parents and as he goes back to Nazareth. Because if we do fast forward, we do realize that the, the end game, Jesus will reign over the entire planet from Jerusalem. So it makes sense that he would be there. And I tend to subscribe to the fact that it's not just a spiritual Jerusalem that'll be in, like, Utah or something. Um, but it's a literal Jerusalem that they take great strides to describe, like, the boundaries of the land in the Old Testament and then the dimensions of the city in the book of Revelation, that this is something pretty intentional, I think. Um, and at 12 years old, Jesus understood who he was. And yet, we don't hear about him again until he's 30 years old. Can you imagine? I was trying to think, and uh, I didn't have like a whole ton of time to prepare, so I had to like look this up. But I was trying to think of a prodigy. You know, if you've ever met people who are just like really good at something, and just like sort of unnaturally so. And the thought that came to my mind, I was going to look up a video and stuff, but I'll just tell you about it, because who likes to watch things when you can just have somebody explain it? Um, there's this kid, I think his name is Aaron, not this Aaron, um, and he uh, plays music, and I think he's currently seven years old, and there's videos of him on his parents' like Instagram, and he's just cutting tracks, and he's just playing bass, and he's singing, and he's playing piano, and he's just killer at music. And they go on to say that he has perfect pitch, which means that um, for, for most people, that means that you identify sound as something other than just audibly. That you can usually, like people that have perfect pitch, like see hues of color based on sound. And so they can identify the note of something without needing to relate it to other notes. So if you just, like, a school bell rings, they can tell you what note the school bell is without any sort of reference. This happens throughout time. So this young kid, um, who happens to be born to a music producer, which seems convenient, um, is just just prodigious at music. And his parents posted this video of him and his report card that he's in first grade and he is failing music class. <laughs> like he literally, it's, it's pass fail, it's participation and he's failing. And their music class is like singing along and like trying to like, uh, like play like recorder clap instruments and stuff like this. And his level of experience and knowledge is so far above that these like little things he just can't even handle it. It's too simple. And I was thinking about that, and I was like, it's an easy problem to have. And there's people that are prodigies about all sorts of things, people that can like, tell you every flag of every country. That doesn't necessarily come in handy all that often, but music is cool, and it makes for good internet content. Am I right? And uh, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Jesus. And I was thinking about Jesus at 12 years old, and likely probably earlier, and he has this complete prodigious understanding of God, of the law, and he has an uh, understanding of who he is. Now, if any of you have ever talked to a middle schooler, a middle schooler who knows who they are is a sign and a wonder because the world is, is attacking them 
violently. I had this youth group full of, of teenage girls who were all 11 or 12, right, at, right on the cusp of puberty, and they were just awful to one another. These are Christian kids who are just bullies, man. I love you guys if you're watching this. Um, but they were just bullies, and they would just make it so hard for each other, like just constantly making fun of each other and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, I remember Shelby, it's like, you're the reason that it's so hard to be a girl. Just stop. Just stop treating each other this way. And to see a 12-year-old in a context very unlike our own know completely who the Lord is and know who he is is a powerful, powerful thing. But he wasn't some awkward prodigy. He was completely within his context. And that is amazing. That's exciting. And we see from there, I didn't put it in the computer, but I'm just going to read the next two verses in the chapter. He went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And so we get this, this God who knows what's going on. He understands. It wasn't some character arc that his parents had to go through and the disciples had to go through. Like, if you've ever heard, like, the story of a hero, there's, like, this story arc where the hero gets a, 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 a call, and then they reject it, and they have this self-doubt, and then they have this self-discovery, and, and it goes around, and they defeat the enemy, whatever. Jesus was, by 12, sure of what he was going to do, sure of who he was before the Lord. And I think even in those moments where he's asking the Lord to let this cup pass from him, he still understands. He still knows what's going on. So much so that he's lamenting over the agony that's coming his way. But yet, at 12 years old, which I don't need to tell you this, is not the height of humility in a young person. It's, it's sometimes the height of honoriness in a young person because you have the capacity of an adult and the attitude of a child. Sometimes, not all the time. He continues to listen to his mom and dad. He continues to learn the trade from his father. He continues to do the things that he's supposed to do. He continues to be a, a big brother to his siblings. He continues to live life in this obscure nowhere country under the oppressive rule of a Roman regime. He continues to do it until the time is right. And even then, when he could probably lightning bolt some people, he doesn't. The meekness of that. You should love him. You should be amazed by him. And I, I, I would pray for us that we would return to that place where maybe you feel uh, kind of dry, maybe you feel kind of detached, but you could look at the words of Jesus and just find yourself wow, again. Or maybe for the first time. Maybe this is something that is really familiar to you. And you're just waiting for that next big moment. You're waiting for the next Rhonda Pulver to come here and make you cry. You're waiting for the next event that we can, we can go to or something like that. Or you're just waiting for a message from somewhere else to come into your ears and hopefully offer you some hope. And I just want you to know that he's not far away. Amen. And that uh, there is treasure to be found. I love um, uh, Psalm 119 is uh, the longest chapter in the Bible. You probably knew that. <laughs> but there's this section, uh, and much of it goes like this if you, if you ever read it. There's this section, I think it's verse 18, that says, um, open my eyes that I could behold wonderful things in your law. And he goes on, 
David, my heart just longs to hear your, your words. And he's not talking about the book of Psalms because he's actively writing the book of Psalms. He's not talking about Ephesians. He's not talking about Hebrews. He's talking about Genesis and Leviticus. He's talking about Numbers and Deuteronomy. And he's saying, like, it's amazing to hear you speak. And it's not just chock full of audible quotes. It's chock full of inspirations and, and lines taking you from, from long ways around to get to the same destination. It's full of those kinds of puzzles and images and meditation literature in different genres. It's full of these kinds of literary things. And he's saying, my heart longs for it. And I read that, I'm like, wow, that's so nice. My heart longs for a nap. My heart longs for some quality alone time. And I, I want to be amazed by Jesus, you know? Whatever may come our way as we look forward into the future and, and, a, and a new year, like a blank slate, I want to be amazed by Jesus. I want to be sure of who he is because he was, you know? Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.